Okay, we're in a series um, called Eli that's taken us through the summer. We're just looking at the life of the prophets Elijah and Elisha in First and Second Kings. And when you preach on books of the Bible like this, it's, it's called expository preaching. And, and in some ways it's easy because we're just simply expounding on the scriptures as opposed to looking for topics to look through the scriptures for to teach on. But it's also, this is such a rich account and a rich story that it's very difficult to um, try to get the whole story in. I mean, we could spend years in this story, but we're only, we're trying to get through it in like 13 weeks, I think. And so there's so much we have to skip over. Uh, but essentially what we're looking at, because we only got a couple weeks left, is um, last week, uh, Elisha had kind of taken on the position and mantle and spirit and blessing of Elijah's role as prophet, as Elijah was Elisha's mentor and leader. Uh, Elisha was his protege, his disciple, if you will, and he, he takes on this, this same, uh, this word mantle is one we don't use often, but this mantle, this calling of uh, prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel in a very special and unique way. Uh, they weren't the only prophets, but they certainly were um, what we would call the major prophets, the ones that um, God really used to speak to the government and the authorities and, and to oppose Baal worship in the nation of Israel. And so last week we talked about uh, Elijah after he was taken up into heaven, uh, kind of the followers of Elijah, the sons of the prophets, as Scripture calls them. They wanted to go look for Elijah. Elijah said, you won't find him. He's gone. They looked. Elijah came back um, or the prophets, the sons of the prophets came back to Elisha, said, you were right. Um, the people there in the city of Jericho asked Elisha to heal their water. That's kind of what we focused on last week, this idea of healing uh, the source of our issues, our struggles, our pains. And then we talked about everybody's favorite story about Elisha and these two bears. And hopefully, uh, hopefully you left real disappointed <laughs> about the story about the bears because you wanted it to be just bears mauling little kids. But that's not what Scripture says. And so hopefully you, you have a further understanding of what was actually going on in that story. So that's where we, that's where we landed last week. And then this week, um, we continue with the journeys of Elisha. And we're specifically in 2 Kings chapter 4. And 2 Kings chapter 4, just like the chapter before, it has three stories in it. So of the three stories of Elisha, we're just going to focus on one. So I'd encourage you, read through this story uh, on your own, with your family, at home. Uh, but today we're just going to focus on one of the events that happens in 1 Kings chapter 4. And as you read through the next couple chapters, you see that the life of Elisha and Elijah parallel each other very similarly. As um, usually Elisha does parallel things to Elijah but kind of does even more um, through the Spirit of God working through him. And so um, I'm going to go ahead and read 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. It'll be up on the screen behind me and um, in front of you if you're watching online. Uh, but then I want to kind of talk for a while before we get too far into this. So 2 Kings 4, verse 1. It says, Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha. So these are the sons of the prophets, these same figures, these, these kind of disciples, these, these learners, these, these people who are being mentored by um, leaders like Elijah and Elisha, the sons of the prophets. Um, Elisha knew them. They served him. So the wives of one of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. 
But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. So there's debt, there's death, um, there's widowship, uh, there's orphanhood in regard to a father now uh, being dead. And this, this woman is in financial destitution. She's in financial trouble. And essentially what's going on here is this man who followed Elisha died. And the wife reminds Elisha of her husband's faithfulness, essentially saying, you know um, that my husband served you. My, my husband was faithful to the Lord. My husband was faithful to you, Elisha. My, my husband served the mission that God put you in charge of. And I need some help. I, I'm in trouble. Now, this happens around 700 B.C., and throughout ancient history in the ancient Near East, um, widows were left in a state of destitution, especially um, those who didn't have children. They, they would struggle because their children wouldn't be able to help take care of them someday. But then having children was complicated because oftentimes men would not take these women in as husbands to help care for them and to provide them. And so oftentimes women who were widows were left to resort to uh, gleaning from fields, um, to begging, uh, you know, sometimes prostitution, all sorts of things. These, these women were in a very difficult position. Now, this doesn't say anything about uh, God's character towards women. This talks about the culture, that in this culture, in this time, women were just left in a state of destitution. It, it doesn't mean that women aren't capable of providing for themselves, but in this culture, these were some of the things that they struggled with. And when you get to the New Testament of the Bible, Paul gives all sorts of instruction for how we as the church are to help care for and minister to widows. And so the heart of God is very much for the widow. The heart of God is very much for the orphan and for uh, what Scripture calls the alien, those who come from other nations. This is what the heart of God is after. And so God cares very much about these things things that culture oftentimes turns blind eyes to. Um, in fact, in the law in the Old Testament, when it came to widows, there was literally um, many, 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 many rules surrounding how widows would be provided for within the nation of Israel because other nations were not taking care of widows. And so there were things like, if you know Scripture, these things called kinsmen redeemers. Uh, people who would take in widows as their responsibility if that fell in line to their responsibility in their family line. If you know the story of Ruth, that's what's going on there with Boaz, a kinsman redeemer. And so God cares for the widow, and his law sets up rules to make sure that widows are taken care of. And the New Testament church implores the church to provide for and to take care of widows. But for whatever reason, this woman, uh, the wife of one of the sons of the prophets, does not have a kinsman redeemer. Um, her husband left her in debt. The creditors want the money back because the woman was not making any income. And so to pay back this debt or this loan, the creditors were going to come take her children from her and use them basically as collateral um, the woman would hope that someone would come and pay back the loan so that she could get her children back. That was not likely because she did not have a redeemer. And these children would have become indentured servants until the loan had been paid off. And so when she goes to Elisha, she is hoping that, you know, maybe Elisha can pay off the debt. 
Um, another possibility is she's hoping that maybe Elisha can take in her children. Maybe he can make them indentured servants and kind of train them in the ways of the Lord. We don't know exactly what she wants, but we just know she doesn't want her children taken by the creditors, and we know that she wants the debt paid off. So this woman here shows this extraordinarily bold faith. She's strong. She is unashamed to do whatever it takes to take care of her family. And she has no problem with boldly going before someone with authority to resolve the issue. And so here, Scripture praises this woman's tenacity, her faith. There are many, many, many women, I would say more women than men in Scripture, that fit this same mold of being very tenacious and bold and being willing to not give up until their needs are met. So that sets up this this short story today. Um, And as I was reading through this passage and the three stories in this chapter, there's a lot of things you can focus on. And that's where it gets kind of hard when you're just going through these books of the Bible. It's hard to know what to focus on. It's also important we don't make the Bible say something it doesn't just to fit the needs of what we want to talk about today. But the thing that came to mind again and again and again as I read this story, I was resistant to even preach on, and it shows the problem with why I need to preach on it. And it also shows why the Lord put on my heart this morning as we prayed and as we honored Hannah, this idea of honor, this idea of of gratitude, this idea of rejoicing and praise to God. Uh, and, And here's what I've noticed within the church, but not just within the church, within society as well. We like to talk about our problems. We like to talk about when things aren't going well. And sometimes we do it out of a a sense of true humility, but but almost a sense of false humility as well. And so someone asks, you know, how are we doing? What what I found for myself, and I can't speak for you, but I I think some of you can, can kind of associate with this, is I will actually sometimes not talk about the good things happening in my life because I'm afraid someone else is not experiencing good things, and I might make them feel bad by telling them about what God is doing good in my life. You ever had that happen before? You're like, I'm so spiritual and holy and humble that I'm going to talk about the bad things so I don't make someone else feel bad that they are experiencing the blessing that I am. You ever done that before? Now, I think this is, there, there is a good heart behind this. There's this sense that, yeah, we don't want to boast. In fact, Paul says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that's the problem. Why can't we boast in the Lord? Why are we so afraid to give credit to God for the things that God is doing, but we're so readily ready and willing and able to share all the bad things that are going on out of this weird sense of humility? Scripture says rejoice with those who rejoice. Scripture says weep with those who weep. And so, yes, we do need to share our burdens. We do need to share our struggles and our problems. And here's the bottom line. Most of us have more struggles and problems that we're aware of than we do blessings that we're aware of, right? Because we don't focus enough on the blessing. And as a result of not focusing enough on the blessing, we're focusing on all the negative that we're actually missing out on all the blessing that's right in front of us that we could be giving God credit for. And so we're afraid to talk about good things. We're afraid to talk about when God does great things. I can remember as a kid, my my dad is here today, but something, you know, I'll just 
share my problem I have with him here in this sermon. <laughs> As a kid, he used, I used to be like, Dad, can you buy me a, you know, milkshake or a candy bar or whatever? And he always would. Like, he took me to, like, Bob's Hamburgers. Man, I miss that place. Um, like, every day after school, Bob's, there was a place called In-N-Out he would take me to. There was a place called Bob's Burger Express. I was kind of a fat kid. And so he'd take me to these places. But if there was ever another kid around, he'd be like, I can't because I don't want them to feel left out. I'm like, I'm your son. Give me the blessing. We're not concerned about this. <laughs> and so I realized it's kind of the same thing. Like, we don't want to give you something good because someone else might feel bad. I'm like, well, buy him one too. <laughs> and so I think, you know, and I use that as this extreme, you know, hyperbole example. But, it, but it's a good example. Like, sometimes we prevent doing good things for other people because we can't do good things for all people. And so there, there is this leader and this, this well-known pastor and author by the name of Andy Stanley. Uh, he has this quote, and it's essentially, do for one what you can't do for everyone. Just because you can't do something for everyone doesn't mean you shouldn't do something for one person who you want to bless. And likewise, just because you've got good things going on in your life and someone else has bad things going on in their life, it doesn't mean you shouldn't give God praise for the good things God is doing in your life because if you actually stopped and gave God praise, it might give that person hope. You see, it goes both ways. We're supposed to weep and rejoice. Rejoice and weep. And I'm afraid of the place our culture is going today that basically says because some struggle, we can't actually look at the blessings. But you see, it's from our blessings that we can help people who struggle. And it's in our struggles that we can draw hope from people who are blessed. And there are times of plenty, and there are times of famine. How many of you have been through times of famine before, where, like, everything's going wrong? You, you do not have the things that you want, and you're suffering, and you're struggling, and your marriage is falling apart, and your family is falling apart, and you've lost your job, you've gone bankrupt, you don't have money in the bank. But how many of you in those places now or those who have been in those places, you can also say there's been times where that was the exact opposite and things were really good. And I don't understand how that works in God's grand economy, but I do know that it's in the times where I have been at my largest lack, or I could say the times I've been most poor, the times I've had the fewest amount of blessings that are actually some of the best memories I've ever had. Because during those times, I had to push in to God a little bit harder. During those times, I had to trust God a little bit more. During those times, I had to lean in on other people. I had to connect with other people. I had to draw strength from other people who were at the height of their blessing. And if there aren't people at the height of their blessing, then who's going to help those who are at the lowest of their famine? It goes back and forth. Times of plenty, times of famine. And so my life in these areas, and I'm sure for you too, it's been a roller coaster. But it's sometimes the darkest times that I think, those are the times I connected most with this friend, with this family member, uh, with, with my wife. It was times when we were praying for where our next package of toilet paper and, and, and can of beans and container of rice would come from that are actually some of the best memories, not some of the worst. There's two kinds of people. There are the people that push into God really hard when things are going really good. And then there's the kind of people who push into God really hard when things are going really bad. And there's a third kind of person. They're the ones that push into God no matter what. There's not a lot of those people. 
I'm not that person. If I'm being transparent, the person I am is I actually push into God more when things are going really good. Because for whatever reason, I foolishly think, now he's worth my trust. Now he's worth my praise. But when things are going really bad, I tend to get really mad at God. But then I have to depend on him. It's just this tug and pull and tug and pull. And so in Western society, especially um, in the United States of America, and especially in places um, like the continent of Africa, um, there has been a movement that's emerged over the last, especially 100 years, that, that if you've been around the church at all, we call it prosperity gospel. And, and prosperity gospel is this idea that if you are a Christian, and if you are being faithful to God, and if you really love God, if you're real spiritual, then you're probably not going to get sick. You're always going to have money. You're always going to have everything you need. You're going to have an abundance of things, and you're just going to be hashtag blessed all the time. Now, that's true some of the time, but there's a big problem with that way of thinking. And the big problem with that way of thinking is when an incredibly faithful, humble, godly, spirit-filled, Jesus-saved, God-worshipping person gets sick, people say, oh, it's because they're not faithful enough. When, when they lose their job, all of a sudden, well, they're not really that spiritual. Have you ever encountered that before in the church, maybe personally, or you've seen it on TV, because for some reason that prosperity gospel is what sells TV real easily, real good? And so when people aren't at their height of their blessing, they feel something is wrong with them. But just because you're going through a difficult time, it doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It might actually mean something's right with you. Because oftentimes when you're going in the right direction, there's a lot of opposition. And even though God does not cause the bad times, he certainly allows the bad times because he knows that the bad times build character, endurance, and strength. And we know that Romans 8 says God works all things together for good. And so if I have to go through bad times in order to experience good things or in order for God to transform me more into the image of his son, then that is awesome. But it doesn't feel awesome. It'll be awesome one day. So there's a tension. And my point of bringing that up is I have been so turned off by the prosperity gospel. I have been so opposed to it that it has actually caused me to be disobedient and not trust in God for really good things. That it's caused me to be disobedient and not actually give God praise and credit when he is doing something good. And so you say, Pastor, that seems like a dichotomy. It seems like there's tension between one and the other, and the answer is, yeah, there is. I'm glad you know this. It's tricky. And so today I would like us uh, to make August, uh, Thanksgiving in August. Yet, uh, July was Christmas in July, but why not Thanksgiving in August? Why not look for things to be grateful for this month? Why not look for ways to show honor where honor is due this month? And if God is blessing you, why not say it's okay to rejoice? Why not say it's okay to celebrate with other people when God does something great for them? And I get it. Sometimes when I'm in a time of lack and other people are a time of blessing, I look at them and think, really? Them? They're the ones that are blessed? And that's what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes. Like, God, why are those who are, they really suck. Why are they having so many great things happening to them? And why are all the real great people suffering like me? Okay, richest man in the world, keep complaining. 
You see, it just it doesn't, it just is a tension, tug and pull. So let's continue in this story. I hope you'll see where this comes in in a second. Second Kings 4, 2. Elijah says to the woman, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? So Elisha wants to help. It's not clear if Elisha has a plan at this point. If Elisha has a plan, it is not clear what the plan is. Does he want to see if she has something to sell? See, we get the impression that Elisha does not have anything to give her. Um, It's hard to judge like what ancient wealth looked like. It doesn't seem like Elisha was wealthy. We really don't know. But but in this interaction, it seems like he's got nothing to give her. It's like when uh, Peter and John walked to the temple and the guy who was the lame beggar, he said, give me some money. And they say, hey, we don't have silver or gold, but what we do have, we give to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk. Similar to that. We don't know what his plan is, but he doesn't have anything to give her. It also seems that his current calling in life would not allow him to take care of this family. Because how this culture worked out, Elisha could have said, yeah, come with us. You're my family now. We don't know if Elisha was married. It it wasn't radically uncommon for someone to have multiple wives. By this time in history, it was less common than it was. But, like, he didn't want to take her in. He didn't want to take in the children. He didn't have anything to give her, so what does he do? Well, we find out she does have something in her house. Because he says, what's in your house? She's got something in her house. It's not much. And so in verse 2, part B, the woman says... Uh, your servant, that's me. She says, I have nothing in the house except there's this one thing. I don't have anything in the house, but, and see, that is our attitude sometimes. God, I have nothing. And God's like, but what, what do you have? I don't have anything. Well, you've got food. I don't have anything. You've got a house. I don't have anything. I've, you've got gas. What do you have in your house? And she says, I don't have anything except I've got a jar of oil. Now, this seems pretty small and insignificant, but it's not. Um, and again, it's very, very reminiscent of First Kings and Elijah and this widow who has just simply a jar of oil and some flour to bake um, bread or cakes with, similar but not the same. This oil was something then that would have been worth far more than it is today. It would almost be like saying, I have a stove, I have an oven, I, I've got something. And so she says, I have a jar of oil. And so this is all I've got. It's the only valuable thing. And so now Elisha has a plan. Whether he had the plan before or not, we don't know. But the plan seems to be more of a prophetic direction from God himself. And here's the plan. 2 Kings 4, 3 through 7. The woman said, oh, I'm sorry, Elisha said to the woman, Elisha said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, Empty vessels and not too few. And this is, in English, this sounds weird. He's just saying, go borrow every person's jar that you can find. Then go in your house and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all the jars you collect. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, so again, her sons are bringing the vessels. She's pouring the vessel of oil into an empty vessel to fill that one up with oil. And it says, when that one was full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, we ran out. 
So she kept pouring the vessels into empty vessels until all the vessels ran out. It says, then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, that's Elisha, and said, this is what Elisha said, go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Vessel of oil poured into empty vessels of oil. There's still oil. Pour into a vessel of oil. There's still, and it just keeps replicating and replicating. And, and the way I look at Scripture is I ask a lot of questions. I'm like, what's the idea with shutting the door? Why, why when Elijah brings the widow's son back to life, does he shut the door before he does anything? Why oftentimes throughout the miracles of Jesus is he like, hey, don't tell anybody. Shut the door. I think if she would have left the door open, the neighbors would have been pretty nosy. How many of you have nosy neighbors? I'm like, what's, what's she doing with my jar? She, she's got a, a goose literally laying golden eggs in here. Like, everybody's going to want in on this great scheme. Like, the oil that never runs out. So shut the door because I'm blessing you. And this, remember we talked about, like, sometimes God, it looks like he's blessing others, and it looks like he's not blessing you. For whatever reason, he's blessing this woman. Her neighbors, they're actually out a jar for a while. <laughs> they're not getting blessed in the traditional sense, but, like, there's seasons and times for everything. And so miraculous provisions, guys. The widow at Zarephath in 1 Kings, her oil and flour never ran out during the famine. The wedding in Cana of Galilee 700 years later, the wine never ran out as Jesus turns the water into wine inside of those jars. One boy's single-serve lunch of loaves and fishes doesn't run out as he gives it to Jesus who multiplies it to feed thousands. The Israelites' shoes did not wear out during their 40-year trek in the desert. God made them last. My son's shoes last a week. When the disciples needed to pay their taxes and didn't have any money, Jesus provided the amount needed in a fish's mouth. After a night of fishing for the disciples with nothing to show for it but an empty net, Jesus provides a boat full of fish by having them cast their nets to the other side. When the temple was rededicated, in the second century B.C., not in Scripture, but in uh, Israel history. When the temple was rededicated in the second century B.C. with a festival of lights, with only enough oil to last for one night, it lasted for eight. That's the story of Hanukkah. These kinds of miraculous provisions are so common in Scripture. And these stories of miraculous provisions show us that God actually cares for us, that God will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory, not ours and not what our neighbors think, but according to his riches and glory. These kind of stories remind us that God is our shepherd, and as such, we actually don't need to want him. So God provides for this widow. God protects this widow's children by miraculously multiplying what she has so that it overflows its original jars and fills every single jar she could find so that every jar that was filled was sold to pay off the debt with enough left over to live on after the debts were paid. See, God does this kind of stuff. We don't talk about it enough. 
because we're afraid of hurting someone's feelings. But while we're rejoicing, we've got to be aware and empathetic of our times of lack and of others who are weeping. It is a tension. And so God's multiplying, and it doesn't just pay off her debt. It actually gives her more than what she needs. That's why, you know, Malachi 3, in talking about tithing, God says to the prophet, like, do this and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing until you have no more need. That's why in Psalms 23 it says that God, the shepherd, he anoints our heads with oil and the cup that he's filling, it's overflowing. That's why Jesus said, I came to give you life and life to the full. But I know for me, I've become so just repulsed by the prosperity gospel that I'm like, eh, but we shouldn't talk about that stuff because then people might actually think they'll get blessed. Wouldn't that be a great thing if people were blessed? because they were looking for the blessings of God and the protection of God in their life. And when we see these things happen, uh, here in the Pacific Northwest, we are, we are the most boring, quiet, dull, rude people, oftentimes, in the country. Uh, travel around, you'll see. In other parts of the country, if you were to share stories like this, people would say things like, yep, that's just like God. Yes, amen, that's, that's what God does. And I wrote in my notes, here, this is just literally the phrase that came to mind as this woman has these jars filled so much that she pays for her debt and there's enough left over to live on after the debts were paid. I wrote my notes in quotes. Ain't that just like God? Ain't that like him? See, going back to what I talked about at first, I think some of us in the church have become so obsessed was speaking out against the prosperity gospel that we've forgotten we serve a generous God who does bless his children. And because we don't expect him to bless us, maybe he isn't in the ways that he could because we're not aware of it when it happens. James 4 says, you don't have because you don't ask. If I'm not expecting a blessing, I'm not asking for and so when one doesn't show up, I'm not that disappointed because I never asked for it. How many of you didn't ask for something because you were afraid of someone saying no? And so you just didn't ask at all. My wife told a story about how she longed to play the piano as a child, and she wishes that someone would have given her piano lessons. But somewhere in her heart, she thought that her mother could not afford to pay for piano lessons for her, so she never asked and as an adult, she shared with her mom, I wish I would have learned piano. And her mom said, well, why didn't you tell me? And she said, you couldn't afford it. And what did mom say? I would have found a way. She would have found a way. God doesn't even have to find a way. God is the way. Now, maybe God will tell us no for whatever reasons, because it's according to his riches and glory, not ours. Maybe there's a good reason for no but we should actually believe so much in God as our Father who wants to provide us with good things that we would actually ask Him for it. That same book, James, it says, every good and perfect gift is from above. What does that mean? It means every blessing I receive, every good thing, every gift, every good and perfect gift, it's from Him. I don't like it when people say things like, oh, let me tell you a story. And it's a God thing. You ever done that before? I've done it before. Like, it's a God thing. That's some weird American culture Christian thing we do. Here's the deal. If it's good, it's a God thing. It, everything that's good is a God thing. 
And so we don't have to like premise, like this is good, but it's not a God thing. Like what? Or this is good, but, but it is a God thing. How about, let me tell you about this good thing. Thank God. Ain't that like him? Ain't that just like him? It's a God thing. Everything is a God thing. See, if I stop believing that God wants to give me good things, then I stop asking for them. If I stop believing that God wants to give me good things, then I stop expecting good things. If I stop believing that God wants to give me good things, then I start doubting him and his provisions for me. And when good things do come my way, I might just start giving myself credit for them. And I might be thanking luck instead of thanking God. You see, because that's actually what happens. I don't expect God to do anything good. So I'm going to stop asking. I'm going to stop expecting. I really don't trust God. Oh, wow, a good thing. I got lucky. Oh, wow, a good thing. It's circumstance. It's chance. Oh, wow, a good thing. Look at what I did to get it. Those things are intricately tied together. But if it's good, no matter how I got it, it's from God. If it's good, every good and perfect gift comes from him. So this woman's tenacity to insist on help from Elisha, her understanding and willingness to do whatever was needed to see that she could do something with what she had instead of giving up over what she didn't have. To invest all she had, trusting she'd receive more back in return. What she was doing was she was walking alongside of, and in a strange way, walking out the provisions of God in faith. You say, Pastor what do you mean? I'm saying if she wouldn't have used what she had, she wouldn't have received what she got. Because God's provision for her was through an act of trust. And if she wouldn't have taken the act of trust, would God have provided? I don't know. But I do know it would not have been as significant. Please listen. You can't have faith that God will provide you with your rents if you're not willing to work. You can't have faith that God will put food on your table if you're not willing to look for a job. You can't pay off your debt while you keep digging yourself deeper into it. Pastor, I rebuke those things. Okay. But it's this thing. What do you have, dear widow? I don't have anything. Except. So many of us expect the food on the table, the rent in the bank. Expect provision when we're not actually trusting God, not being obedient to God, not doing the things that God calls us to do in order to walk in his blessings. That's why Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, if someone doesn't work, they're not going to eat. That's why scripture says that if someone doesn't provide for the needs of their own household, it's actually talking about providing for widows in your own household. They're worse than an unbeliever. You can't just trust that God's going to start throwing food at the widows. If they are in your family, you're responsible to take care of them. You see, faith in God for these things, for provision, is also obedience to God in these things. So do you have faith for God to do something for you? Then I would encourage you to have faith for God to do something 
in these things, knowing that when I find whatever my hand finds to do, and I work with all my might as if I'm working for God and not for man, that is one of the ways, that is one of the conduits by which God blesses. And all this woman has is a jar of oil. Here's where we start to wrap this up. What do you have? All the woman has is a jar of oil. What do you have? Well, Moses had a staff. That boy in the story of Jesus with loaves and fishes, what did he have? He had a lunch. And this widow has a jar full of oil, and she's willing to let it go. She's willing to trust. She is willing to risk. She is willing to invest. She is willing to take a leap of faith. And she is willing to give it all if that's what God asks her to do. Luke 6.38 says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. That's not a verse about offerings or tithes, by the way. In context, it's actually talking about forgiving people. This verse is about this idea that we are to live open-handedly. We are to live generously. We are to be willing to use what we have. We ought to be willing to use our gifts instead of hoarding our gifts. And we ought to do it for the good of others. And not just for the good of others. Without being arrogant or prideful, we're actually doing it for the good of ourselves as well. Many of us don't have all we could in life because we're not using what we do have. Many of us don't have all we could have in life because we're not giving what we do have. And we do it for all sorts of reasons. What I have to give isn't good enough. The only thing I've got is not good enough. The talent I have is not good enough. I'm not expecting anything good to come my way, so why would I invest what I have? So what do you have? I wrote just a short list of things that we have. Here's some things you have. Some of you have skills. And so if Elijah comes to you and you say, hey, I'm in need, and God speaks to the prophet and says, what do you have? And I want you to take inventory. What are the skills I have? What are the skills that you have? Insert Napoleon Dynamite Bostaff skills here. Continue. Some of you have talents. There's a big difference between a talent and a skill. A talent is something you're born with. There are some of you that are amazing artists, amazing musicians, amazing at writing, amazing at poetry, amazing with these wonderful talents you have. What do you have? Well, the only thing I can do is paint this incredible picture. What do you have, dear widow? Here's something we all have, time. Well, I don't have enough time. No, we just use our time poorly. What do you have? I've got time. I I can put this time into, okay, awesome. I'll, I'll use that. Here's something some of us have, energy. What do you have? Energy. Use it. What do you have? I've got a body. Use it. I've got a brain. Use it. Some of you have literally some of the best social skills I've ever seen. Charm, humor, people skills. Man, use it. Use it. You can use it without being manipulative, by the way. 
you can use it without being cheesy and, and, and like a, a con artist. Like sometimes we think of people like, man, they're, we use words like schmoozer. Like, no, no, you're just good with people. Use it. Use that smile. Use that ability to connect with people in ways that others would dream to have. Some of you have connections with people. Some of you have relationships with people. Some of you have favors you can actually call on. You say, well, that's not godly. Oh, it actually is. Read some of the parables of Jesus about people who were cunning in a good way, about people who were wise as serpents but gentle as doves. Some of you have favors you could call in. With whatever you have, when God God says to you, when you say, God, here's my need, and when God says, okay, what do you have? You're like, whoa, I don't want to give anything. But what do you have? And when you take inventory and recognize what you have, then I would ask you to pour it out and watch as God fills the vessel back up again and again and again and again and again. And not just fill you up, but fill you up to overflowing. Pressed down, shaken together, running over. So that that can be given to others. To bless others. And to overflow in such a way that it provides for your future needs as well. Um, I'm going to share a couple testimonies as, as Kim comes back up to lead us in, in song. Because I've I got to practice what I preach. And um, a couple of years ago, I was going through the second worst time in my life that was leading up very quickly to the worst time in my life. And... On a day where I thought things couldn't get any worse, I had someone call up and said, hey, would you like a trip to Jamaica? And I was like, no, I don't believe in blessing. Not really. I was like, yeah, I'll go to Jamaica. And so my wife and I, we went, and um, everything was paid for. And we're like, well, what's something we'd like to do? Like, we could never afford this trip at this time in our life, so what would we do? And and so we we decided the one thing we would spend money on was to go... um, deep sea fishing in Jamaica. And uh, there's so many cool parts about that story, but long story short is um, we're staying in a resort. And in that resort, um, it is very, very, very secluded from any businesses, banks, anything. No civilization near the resort we're at. It's pretty like you're insulated at that resort. There was no ATM at the resort to take out money. And so we brought um, some cash that we had with us for the trip. And we had um, budgeted that out for the rest of the trip. And as we're going to this fishing trip that we'd already paid for, we had miscalculated some of the money. We realized we didn't have any money left, and it was like the last day of our trip before we could spend money on on anything else. Uh, We knew that we could use our, our credit or debit card when we went somewhere that had those things, but the cash had run out. And so we got in the uh, taxi cab, rode to the harbor, we got into the boat, went out on our our fishing trip, and it ends up that the the captain of the boat was a pastor of a local church there in Jamaica. And he brought his nine-year-old son with him, just this this cute boy. I wish I should have showed you a picture of him uh, and the fish he caught. Uh, There was this cool, old uh, Rastafarian man that weighed like 20 pounds that was there on the boat with us as well. He'd do amazing things with, with no shoes on on that boat. And we were out all day, and um, you know, by God's grace, I caught three fish, and my wife only caught one. 
And it was just like this great time. We got to see um, sperm whales up close. It was just amazing. Hear the story about what God's doing in this, this pastor's church in Jamaica. And when we get back to the harbor, like, how many of you think tipping is awkward? Tipping is just awkward. Like, how much do I tip? Um, as I, the older I get, the, realize, the more I realize I want to tip above and beyond what I think is, is the minimum. Like, let's bless people, right? So I'm like, I want to... I wanna, tip these people. And sometimes it's unclear, like, do you tip your barber or hairdresser if they own the shop? Do you tip a nail person? When I get my nails done, I always have to ask that question. (laughs) Do you tip, you know, what do you tip a barista versus a waitress? What if you order at a counter? And there's, it's just like, you don't know these tipping rules. And so if you've ever been on a guided fishing trip before, like, I think you're supposed to tip. And so um, it is the pastor, his son, the Rastafarian guy. And, and as I'm out, I'm like, we don't have any cash to give these guys a tip. And I really want to bless them. And I was like trying to think of a way, like, you know, maybe we can get a taxi that will, that will take our debit card and we can drive, you know, 20 miles away to get cash and I can get their phone number to call them to bring the tip back. And I'm just, we're running out of ways to pay these guys a tip. And we get back um, to the harbor and I'm like, for some reason, my wife just says, just look in your wallet to see what you have. And I open up the wallet, and I'm actually, I need to ask my wife the, the exact amount, so I don't, I don't want to exaggerate, but here's what I think it was, and I'll tell you what the minimum might be. We open up the wallet, and there, there's three bills in the wallet. I think it was 350s. I don't think it was 320s. It might be. I'll, I'll, she's always right. I'll ask her later. She's serving in kids today. Um, but I open up, and there, there's these 350s. And... I'm telling you, we, we scoured the hotel that morning. We didn't have a dollar in, in cash. And we desperately wanted to go get something to give to the driver and to the, the fisherman and the son and little Rastafarian guy. Um, wanted to give them a good tip. And then we're like, okay, well, who do we tip? Do we tip the captain and does he distribute the money out to everyone? Or do we tip the, his, his assistant, the Rastafarian guy? Would it be acceptable to tip the kid? And like, what, what do we do? It's awkward, right? But when I open up my wallet, I'm out of desperation. You know, my wife just says, just look to see what's there. And so we open up, there's three 50s, 50 for each of them, the, the boy, uh, the pastor, and the Rastafarian. That's, that's a good joke. There was a boy, a pastor, and a Rastafarian. <laughs> and um, we literally were like, we did not have that money. And so as we poured that jar into another, we took out what was there, and we handed the captain the $50. We handed the Rastafarian the $50. I think $50 there is probably like two to $300 here. It's, it's, a decent, it's a decent wage. But to hand the 50 bucks to the kid made, made the entire trip worth it because uh, this nine-year-old boy is getting the equivalent of probably three hundred dollars U.S. and he's just there to help his dad. He's just there to serve his family to make sure that they put food on the table. And let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. God blessed us so abundantly at that time. Not so they're like, yes, $150 for souvenirs. God blessed us abundantly at that time so that we could be a blessing to the Father, 
to the fisherman and to the little boy. And his eyes lit up, and a smile was big on his face, and we, we, we made his week. And that was blessing enough. And I'm here to tell you that God does bless. And that God blesses you so that you can bless other people. And we're not just talking about money. But I'm telling you, you need to ask yourself, what do I have? And at the time, what did we have? We had a desire to bless them. We had a wallet with no money in it that we opened up that had exactly what we needed. And in fact, we didn't need it at all. They did. And so we blessed them with what they needed. And God has a way of providing jars for us that we didn't even know existed. And so he poured his jar into my jar, which was a Velcro wallet. And I poured my jar into three kept flowing in blessing. I want to give God praise for good things he does. Um, I could tell you, I mean, story after story of how God just blessed my wife and I with, with a house that we never thought that, that we would have, and we're so excited to, to bless people in a house, because we've been living in a place that we just couldn't have people over. And just this miracle after miracle after miracle of God providing step by step by step by step, he put on our heart that, hey, you need to move to a bigger place so you can entertain more people put on our heart, you need to get your kids in this other school that you don't have money for. But we took step after step after step, and God just met us every step of the way that we took in faith. He provided, he provided, he provided, he provided. And I'm here to tell you today that God is good. And if you have a need, ask yourself, what do I have? And offer it up to him and let him fill that jar. Because your God will provide all according to his riches and his glory. And yeah, I get it. Life is going to be really, really, really hard sometimes. And it's going to seem like you have nothing. But those are the times to really dig in to see what you have. And you'll find out you had a lot more than you thought. And God can fill up your vessel even when it's hurting the most. And those memories could actually end up being the best and though you might not have money in your jar during those times, here's what's being poured out into your jar. A lot of character. A lot of character. You might be saying, Pastor, I don't want my character built up anymore. <laughs> Try, I get it. I understand. Keep asking what you've got. Keep being willing to make yourself an open vessel. So Kim's going to lead us in a song. Um, if you guys would like to partake in communion today, there's some communion uh, on sides of our stage. If you'd like to remember the body and blood of Christ, you can do so as we worship. Um, I'd like to open up our, our altar here. If anybody say, man, I feel like the widow today, and I've got a pretty big need, I, I'd love for some of our, our leaders here to lay hands on you, pray for you, that God would meet that need and show you what you have and the steps you need to take to find yourself where you need to be. And maybe you're just like, hey, I'm just so moved, and I just want to give God praise. Would you pray for me that God would give me the boldness to rejoice and not feel bad about it? I'd love to pray for you for that, too. And so um, as we sing, we'd love to pray with you. And um, we've got Paula. I think you're going to come up dismiss us here in a little bit. And, and after she dismisses, I'll hang out up here as long as you guys would like. I'd love to pray for you. So God, bless this word. Uh, we offer up our vessels to you as what we have. And God, as you call us to pour those out, I pray that you would fill more in return, not for our own good, but for the good of others and the advancement of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.